Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Just one more thing, grief growers. Do you ever feel trapped, stuck, or silenced in the aftermath of loss? Are you struggling to figure out who you are now or what your life is made of now that death, divorce, or diagnosis has steamrolled through? Whether you're trying to cultivate deeper self-compassion, figure out where grief belongs in your life now, or simply feel like you have more room to breathe, the three words that your heart needs to hear are permission to grieve. Permission to Grieve is the title of my latest book, a tribute to the three little words that changed how I saw myself and my grief after the death of my mom. I know it has the power to change how you see yourself and your grief in whatever loss you're facing. You can find Permission to Grieve now on Amazon. Give yourself more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, because we could all use a little more Permission to Grieve. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Miami Knight, a coach, Reiki master, and anti-gun violence advocate about the three losses that changed her life, including the death of her son, Taiki. Also this week, I'm talking about giving yourself permission to feel your feelings and sharing yet another excerpt from my new book, Permission to Grieve. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to help others find direction, get support, and cultivate radical self-compassion in the aftermath of loss. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, grief growers, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Just a speedy reminder that my next live grief support session is coming up on Monday, October 28th at 8 p.m. Central Time. If you'd like to join me and other listeners of this show for an hour-long conversation about grief, loss, and all the things that change when we experience heartache, pledge at any level over at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. When you pledge, you'll instantly unlock the link to join us live for a full hour on October 28th. You can also go back into my Patreon archives and access replays of our previous grief support conversations, which is really, really helpful and no two conversations are alike. You can find that link and pledge to join us in just a few weeks in the show notes. This week, grief growers, I want to get into the meat of my new book, Permission to Grieve. If you've been listening since the start of season seven, you know that I've been reading a little piece of my book, Permission to Grieve, on every episode. And up until today, I've only been reading bits from part one of the book. 
So today I want to get into part two, which is the most important part of permission to grieve. It lays out what I'm calling the three big permissions, permission to feel, permission to be, and permission to do. And these are all different permissions that we need to give ourselves in the aftermath of loss. And so there's a chapter devoted to each in the middle section of permission to grieve. I can't possibly cover the whole book here on the podcast. So this week, check out this clip from the chapter entitled Permission to Feel. And if this resonates with you, I so encourage you to pick up a copy of Permission to Grieve, which is live now on Amazon. And you can find that link in the show notes. Listen in. Permission to Feel letting grief move through you. You can't bypass feelings. You have to go through them. John W. James and Russell Friedman in Moving Beyond Loss. After my mom died, my emotions shut off. I was so overwhelmed with getting through my day-to-day life that what I emotionally expressed was close to nothing. I put on a brave face for the cast of the show I was directing I put my head down through my classes, doing the best I could to think and process and write essays with a thick black cloud hanging over my head and weighing me down. And I put on a happy face for everyone who asked if I was excited for life after graduation. Excited? My God, I couldn't remember what joy felt like. Looking back now, I don't know how I wasn't having a meltdown every second of every day without my mother. Looking back now, I also realized that I didn't have a meltdown because I felt that I couldn't, that I wasn't allowed to, or if I was allowed to, it wouldn't be welcomed, embraced, or considered reasonable, even by myself. I thought it was better to feel nothing and follow the linear plan that was laid out previous to my mom's death than feel the emotions of grief and risk further unraveling the life I now knew to be extremely fragile. Plus, grieving took so much energy, and I was using what little energy I did have to make it through each excruciating minute without my mom. Adding grief in on top of that seemed like the best way to break myself even further beyond repair. The night I had screamed in my dad's pickup truck seemed so long ago. Letting myself fall apart like that again seemed so impossible. That level of emotion felt so unreachable, and yet at my core, it was what I was doing internally all the time. The wolf in the basement was wailing, scrambling, heaving, sobbing. Where is my mother? I can't live without my mom. God damn it, give me my mother back. Now, don't let me lead you to believe that I felt the same level of absolute nothingness for a year after my mom died. While I did feel sad and cry sometimes, strangely enough, or strangely to me at the time, my emotions only surfaced when given space and visibility by someone else. My mom's sister is a gifted intuitive and listener. Almost every Sunday for a span of six months, my aunt tuned into my heart and the stories I was telling myself in grief. She listened as I talked about how hard my life was without my mom and shared in how much I missed her. Another person who gave me that space was one of my professors. After witnessing the invisible black cloud hanging over my head in class one day, she called me into her office where I promptly broke down in tears on her sofa. She became a safe place for my grief, and also helpfully, she became my thesis advisor. She held me to high standards, but also knew what I was wrestling with internally. Her presence was a powerful gift. The final person who gave me space and visibility was the first person I ever received Reiki from. She had a little table set up at a local food festival, and for a $10 donation, she spent 10 minutes doing Reiki on the primary energy centers of my body. 
I thought, what the hell, let's see if this does anything. This was me doing the involuntary scavenger hunt before I had words for it. As I sat in her chair for those ten minutes, I was seen and known and paid attention to in my pain without having to say a single word. I was allowed to be grieving in the space she created using Reiki. Where words failed, my body and energy spoke for myself. I was hurting, and this Reiki practitioner could sense it. She ended up becoming my Reiki level one instructor. What I didn't know during each of these interactions was that these friends, teachers, and practitioners were giving me permission to feel. Their non-judgmental, heartfelt, focused attention allowed my grief to rise to the surface and my emotions quickly followed. After each conversation and session, I felt lighter, not heavier, because throughout that brief experience of sharing, my grief was no longer contained and silenced. It was free to move through me. I was allowed to show up as a whole, grieving human. Permission to feel is all about having an experience and allowing yourself to experience the vast array of emotions that accompany grief. It's asking yourself, what am I feeling in this moment? And letting the answer, whatever it is, be okay with you. If you'd like to help yourself experience and express more emotion in the aftermath of loss instead of tamping it down, I would love if you picked up a copy of Permission to Grieve, which is live now on Amazon in both paper book and ebook formats. There's so much more in the book that I can't relay here, including lots of journaling prompts and fun doodles that I made to illustrate grief. So if this week's excerpt resonated with you, pause this podcast right now and order yourself a copy. You can find a link to buy Permission to Grieve in the show notes for this episode. If you're unsure about actually purchasing a copy of Permission to Grieve, you can request a copy of Permission to Grieve from your local library. It would be an honor to have Permission to Grieve read by you, but also by others in your community. So I would so appreciate any of you requesting that a local library in your area request and order Permission to Grieve. This week, I challenge you to give yourself more permission to feel in the aftermath of loss. Stay tuned next week for an excerpt about permission to be, which is all about allowing our identities to change in grief, something we speak quite a lot about here on Coming Back. Up next, my conversation with Miami Knight, a grief coach, author, and Reiki master who's joining me to talk about faith, choice, and the impact of gun violence. Grief is setting sail, twice, on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart-healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruises organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Miami Knight is a master grief and energy healing coach, a Reiki master, and the author of the book The Key Process, a grief guide to mastering spiritual healing. Three major losses, including the brain injury and suicide of her son, drove her to explore her grief through many emotional and spiritual channels. 
Her work helps grievers transition through the grief world, educating them along their loss and grief journeys. Miami serves as an ambassador for the anti-gun violence nonprofit Bullets for Life, which repurposes bullets for non-harmful purposes. She currently lives in Atlanta. I am so glad to have you here, Miami, as a referral from one of our previous Coming Back podcast guests, Kathy Cheshire. Uh, As a person who does a lot of umbrella things with grief, both from grief coaching, grief Reiki, involvement with projects related to gun violence. And I'm just so happy to be able to have you on and share your story. So without further ado, let's just jump in. Okay, thank you. In a matter of eight years, I'd had three profound losses um, in my family structure. I'd lost my father due to congenital um, heart defect he had from when he was born. And I lost my sister who had a hematoma, brain hematoma. And I also lost my son who had suffered from a traumatic brain injury, which later he suicided. So after that eight years of suffering um, through traumatic grief and loss, that caused me significant, I'm, I'm so serious, significant emotional scarring. And I was desperate to find ways to heal from all of my profound losses Um, with the assistance of prayer and therapy, my guides, uh, my coaches, my friends. I transitioned through my recovery by processing and understanding the uniqueness of the five stages of grief and all of the emotional sensitivities that was associated to my loss. Um, After I went through the whole loss of losing my son, which I must also add that five five years prior, he had been shot in the head. Um, We had a lot of recovery um, from the initial shooting back in 2011. And also that night, he lost his best friend. It was due to a robbery. And... He had so much recovery, which consisted of cognitive speech therapy. He had to learn how to walk all over again, Um, you know, just on a lot of medications, um, seeing so many different doctors and therapists. But going through that process, it only took him about six months to heal. Um, His neurologist was just so amazed at how fast, you know, his brain um, started repairing itself and he started walking again. He even... Uh, one of his biggest things that he wanted to do was vote and get a driver's license. So um, he did do those things. Um, but then we came upon the trial, which he had to sit across from his frenemies because um, he did know these these young men um, that did shoot him and his friend. Um, but God gave us the opportunity to be able to go to court and, he, and for him to be able to be the key witness in the trial and both boys did get um, life sentences, but four families lost their children that day, um, and it was just a sad situation, but we we grew through it, and I thought he was doing a lot better. He ended up moving back. Well, I moved him here to uh, Georgia so he could go to some of the best um, facilities, which was the Shepherd Center, and um, he was doing very well, and then he started feeling like he wanted to go back because he didn't want to feel like they ran him out of his city and all of this old kind of stuff. And he ended up leaving to go back and he lived there for 
for the four years he started working again, you know, he was doing very well and he just ended up taking his own life um, in January of 2017. Um, but, you know, that's just, I had to learn, you know, how to move forward after that. And I remember trying to figure out what am I going to do? Because I was so angry as a, as a mother. I was really angry at the fact that I felt like that I had gone through this again. And, you know, I was saying, you know, I didn't believe in God anymore. I was really upset with God because I'm like, why did I have to go through this twice? And just having to re-experience that and I'm burying my son and, you know, try to figure life out again. Um, when I just thought everything was okay, I was already, like I said, experiencing an eight-year loss of losing my father and my sister, but to lose him, and in that manner was really hard for me. Um, so the only way that I was able to move forward was by just deciding. I, I, I just had to decide that I wasn't going to do that anymore. I just woke up. It was kind of like after his uh, death anniversary. Um, and I, had, I had to take off work. I just knew that whole week was going to be kind of sad for me. And, and I didn't do well with it. But um, I just decided. I cried up until the last date that I talked to him, not the last not when he died, but the last date that I spoke to him. And I, I just, I let everything out that I could. I didn't even have any more tears on the actual date, which was two days later. Um, but I just decided, I said, February 1st, I'm not doing this anymore. And um, I called a girlfriend of mine and I told her the same thing. And next three days later, she had a vision board party. And I just started working on myself and started figuring out what I needed to do to move forward. Um, and after that, that was some of the things that kind of moved me through through the process of, of trying to understand where I was with my grief. There's absolutely so much to, to look at and unpack here. And I've got three totally different questions for you, and I'm not sure which one to start with. So I'm kind of just going to um, see which one is resonating. And I think it's most related to your recent statement of going to this friend's house who had a vision board party. And I literally wrote down, what can we say, or what can you say personally about the power of being able to visualize someplace different than where you are right now? Because I think this is a tool that so many grievers don't know that they have is like, if I could even picture what my life might even look like, maybe a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, maybe I could figure out how to take steps to get there. But everything seems so close and so impossible and so dark. So like, how did you get to this place? Or maybe even how did your friend walk you to this place of being able to visualize this could be your life, you could make it something different? Well, I, I guess I have to go back a little. Um, two days prior to my son committing suicide, I just had a friend over that um, she was going to help me work out. She, she was a life, she's a life coach and she was going to help me work out the four corners of my life. And I was so excited. Uh, we had the boards all over my wall. We were going over each perfect step, which was my health, my business, um, my personal life, um, my marriage, just all these four, different four corners of what I was, what I, in what I was to be in expectation of, of changing my life at the time. And we did a 90 day plan on what that vision looks like. And the thing that I, I always tell people is see, for me, God has always kind of just been with me. And 
for me, I already had a 90 day plan prepared for me, which, and I didn't even know what was going to happen two days after this. I was so pumped up, so excited. And of course, after this happened to my son, there was, there was no way that I wanted to look at a piece of paper and go up, go over my life. But within those two to three to four weeks after his passing, I did have something to refer to. And I did have something to look back on, like eating or, or drinking more water or exercising more. I, I had a list of some things that I, that I had already had a plan for. And I just think it was kind of like already kind of set up, you know, like God had already gave me a plan because he knew what was coming. I didn't, but I already had something to fall back on. And just for a person that, that may, that may not have that, I would say, go back to the things that you love. Or if you were a writer, find those old books, um, journal, begin to journal, and then you'll start finding those things that wants to come out of you, um, do something that you've never done before. Um, just be a different person, choose to be someone different because a lot of times when we lose someone, we want that same systematic thing. It's not that anymore. So we have to change. And in that change, we have to create something new. So that's why I said journaling or doing something that you've never done before. Um, and not just if you hadn't lost anyone, if you were to lose your job, you have to start thinking differently. Now, what else can I do? It wouldn't it be something that I always wanted to do that I never experienced. So it would have to be something in that realm or, 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 or something like that, that you would, you would want to kind of put position yourself into. That makes so much sense. And I love that you keep using these words choose and decide over and over and over again, because we have to actively participate in the process. It, it doesn't just happen. And I've admitted a few times on this show that the book that actually got me into doing grief work was called The Happiness Project. Mm -hmm. So it was not a book related to grief. It was not a book related to healing. Right. It was this book that asked a lot of smart, introspective questions on what do you want to do with your life and what yeah. can you construct for yourself that makes you happier. But here I was reading it, I don't know, eight months after my mom died. And somehow I was like, this is apparently the thing I'm going to reach for. But that that got me to remember that I used to love going to the library as a kid. And then I started reading again. And then slowly that like, somehow that daisy chain of weird things connecting all together got me into reading all these memoirs and grief books and how to and self help about what coming back from grief even could possibly look like. And then that whole vision was created, but it wouldn't have started if I hadn't had taken a second to think about okay, what's going to make my life happier? And like happiness is so far from grievers' radars. Like how, it doesn't seem possible. But when you when you break it down or even say, I don't even have to be happy tomorrow if I can just figure out a way to be happy in the next 10 seconds yeah. in this moment today, yeah. or even like as far as to the end of the week, like I don't have to be happy for the rest of my life because God knows I can't picture that right now. But to build in those structures and this weird thing that happened in your life of, I got this plan two days before my son took his own life. So it's like I had something to refer back to, right. not on purpose, not even deliberately. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine 
what it would be like if we were to constantly be doing this questioning of ourselves as what do I want? What would I like my future to look like? So that when our losses happen, we do have things to refer back to. I think that's just an incredible piece of advice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And that leads into something else too, because you were talking about God knowing what was going to happen with your son before you did. And then, but before that, when you were telling your story, you were talking about being angry with God and upset with God. And I think this reckoning of faith is also something that happens in loss. So can you lay out maybe the relationship that you have now have then what happened in the aftermath with this eight years of hell that you lived? A lot of times, I would fast. Fasting is such a big part of my life. And I remember when my oldest daughter was sick and she was in California and I had to fly out there to go check on her. And I remember just going on this fast. And when I went on this fast and I came back, that was this December. Um, January is when I lost my son. And I just, it was like the floor just caved in up under me. I didn't I was so angry because I I felt, like I said, I felt like this was the second time he had done this to me, not just with the loss of my my father and my sister, but the second time with my son. And I was just so grateful. Um, I had so much joy behind him, keeping him here to go through this trial and, you know, seeing him finally move forward and finally, you know, making the right decisions because he was raised by his father. So a lot of times, you know, I just had him for summers and vacation and birthdays and and I knew, and I guess a lot of that too was guilt too. Um, I had all of this guilt inside because I didn't raise him, but I was so grateful. The best thing that came out of it was when he was shot, I got him back. So that's where the mother relationship and the nurturing and all that came from when he was back to a vegetable, back in a baby state. And I finally got that opportunity to be his mom, the mom he deserved. And he got a, got the opportunity to be the son that I deserve. Um, and that exchange, I, it, it meant so much more to me than the, the years that I thought that I'd lost, which I hadn't lost. It was just that I wasn't there on the day-to-day basis. So that being taken away from me when I felt that, you know, I had just gotten it, um, I was upset. I just really don't talk to me about the Lord. Don't talk. Don't say no, Jesus. It was not going to happen. And not until I decided and I made a change, I think because I had repressed all of the faith that I had because I was a strong believer. And also at this time, um, when I went to this vision board party, a week later, I started another fast. I started the Daniel fast, and a 21-day fast, and I never, back, I never went back to eating meat. Now I'm going on two years being a full vegan. So that mindset change actually ended up helping me by me changing my diet, um, going to a plant-based diet. I was able to, you know, think clearer and hear better and, you know, just seem to be a better person and healthy per- healthier person inside. But I've always knew, known the word of God I, and, and it's always been within me. But then I started really practicing my spiritual awareness and higher consciousness and meditation. That meditation was a big deal for me. Um, also, I started learning about ancestral history. I started working with spiritual healers to help me heal old childhood 
childhood traumas and, you know, getting all of those things out of me that I didn't need um, because that's what was holding me. I was suppressing so many different things. And, you know, once you have a, a, a profound, so many profound losses or just a profound loss, um, it brings up some stuff that you didn't even, that you weren't even aware that you were suppressing. So, after I start releasing a lot of that stuff, start learning about Reiki and how to heal my heal my own energies and my chakras and align them and learning to be one and connected with the divine and expressive and feeling safe again and uh, feeling creative again and feeling like I just start feeling better about myself because of all of the practices that I started doing. And um, I went on this women's retreat and I learned how to release old childhood traumas. And that was a big one for me because I had childhood trauma and um, I had the loss of, of not having my son with me. I didn't know I really suffered from that. It was so big because when I used to send him back home or he would come here, that would be this whole two to three weeks that we both were being very dysfunctional in our emotions. He would act out in school and I couldn't show up for work. And then I'm in the bed all week and he's not participating in school, you know, because there was this disconnect because we wasn't together like we really wanted to be. But, you know, we just, I kind of shut it off. It's, oh, okay, well, I'll be okay. But for so many years of doing that, and I can only imagine how military moms feel when they have to, you know, come home for a while and, and then leave their children and military fathers as well. But um, I, I just, I, I just had that disconnection would bother me a lot. So when I didn't realize all of those things was, was a, had a total big effect on me. Um, then once I finally went back to his grave, that was another relief because I was, I didn't go the whole year. I just couldn't go. I just, I, I wasn't ready. And I thank God I had so many great girlfriends and friends that lived back home where my son was that they were always telling me, not until you're ready. You know, when you're ready, we'll go until you're ready, which, oh God, that just gives me chills when they would tell me, we'll go for you. And um, not until you're ready. And then after that year, and when I decided, and when I made that change, I said, no, I'm ready. I need to go. I need to go. But it took me the summer of 2017 to go back. And my name is Miami. And, and my father named me that because of him watching the sunrise. And he had never been to Miami before. But when he found out my mother was pregnant, and they decided, he said, well, if it's a girl, I'm going to name her. And his clue was he would tell my mom because they were living in Miami at the time. You see it every day. She had no clue. But uh, he would just watch the sunrise. And that was something that I never had seen before. I never experienced. So the weekend that we went to go to my son's um, grave and for, so that I could finally have this conversation because at the funeral, I remember I was the, we were the last car out and I just had this vivid, this vivid picture in my head of the casket being rolled down. And that's all I could remember, you know, to, from that day. It was so much, you know, during the funeral, there's so much going on and so many people trying to speak to you, but that was the last visual that I had. And I was so afraid, I guess, of going back there. Um, so it took me that long to go back there. And after we left the gravesite, we drove to Miami and watched the sunrise. And that's where I had a spiritual awakening there. I mean, I really met God there at the water, at the sunrise, and all of that ended up just changing me. That was a shift. And when the shift happened, I, I tell you, everything in my life changed um, just within a blink of an eye. It, my whole life just 
turned to this way that I knew that now I have a purpose. Um, there's something more that I'm going to be doing here. Um, God doesn't make any mistakes. There is a reason behind what happened, and I need to be able to figure that out. So that's how I started with the grief coaching certification, because I wanted to understand what healing looked like in grief. And I wanted to understand what the framework of grief was. I believe in the stages. Everybody, you know, there's so much going back and forth about if there's stages or not. But for me, it worked for me because I had a framework of something to state this is how it was, I was feeling. And for me, it worked for me. And that's why I really love talking about it, um, talking about the stages to people that don't understand or just going through it. But they, they can, they're going to find their own way in their journey. But I try to give as much support as that I had and to as many people that gave their all to me. I just want to give that back to them. That's such a magnificent story about the sunrise. And that actually gave me chills of your dad giving this clue. If you see it every day and your mom was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) And that's right. Because, because the process of naming, I get chills talking about this, but like what we call ourselves and what others call us is very significant. And so to be in this space where you are literally sitting across from your namesake the sunrise in Miami, like, of course, that would be the space where your spiritual awakening happens. Like, of course, it's like, because it's there you are, and you're mirrored back to yourself. And so I just get chills thinking about that. And what I love about it, too, is that I like two things. The first thing is that when the spiritual awakening happened, it wasn't something that somebody else gave you. And I think a lot of times people try and push meaning or purpose onto grievers. And you're like, no, that doesn't belong to me. Like they're in a better place or everything happens to reason. Like we have to get there ourselves. If you tell us, we're not going to believe you, but if we get there ourselves and we feel it like in our bones and we have these moments where we're staring across from the sun, like, yes, of course, that makes perfect sense to our, our beings and our hearts. And the other thing that I love is something that you'd mentioned earlier about this idea of your faith being repressed. And I think you said that in a really neat way. I've never heard it phrased that way before because a lot of people say they had a crisis of faith or they lost faith as if it went away. And when Mm -hmm. you say you repressed faith, that feels like it's being held down. So like it still exists at this level and the possibility for it to come back is very real. Whereas when people say they lost faith, I just think of it gone in the blink of an eye forever. Um, So I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit more about what represses faith in grief and maybe what brings it back? Um, Just simply falling out of love with God represses it. Um, Just the not knowing how or what stage that you're in or what emotion that you're feeling or what sensitivity that you're having to an actual emotion helps I'm sure a lot with suppressing um, just because you don't know where you are and you don't know how to feel and you don't understand how to process, not understanding how to process or heal from grief. um, Your thoughts and emotions are all over the place. So being able, being not able to be in a space to be open to God and, 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 and still loving on him, even though some, you just had this traumatic extreme um, life altering change that has happened to you um, or something that was being taken away. And you know that most grief experts say that we are acquired to receive or get things or have things as opposed to losing them. And since we 
don't understand the process of losing because we wasn't taught that. I remember as a little child, my mother, when her girlfriends was over and it could have been whatever, this woman's husband or this lady's having an issue with her children. I don't know what their deals were, but they used to send, you know, the kids to the room. And I can understand that because you don't need to be in grown folks business, but we never understood what they were going through when they were just talking it out and learn how to talk it out with other women or, uh, or your friends, or even when someone died, like they would say, Oh, he's just sleeping. No, he's not sleeping. Now children are afraid to go to sleep. You know, we were always not taught how to handle it. So by suppressing it, you just hold it in. Um, the ways to answer the second part of the question um, is getting back there, coming back, just like your show. How does, what does that look like coming back? And um, it looks like a new you, something different, something that you're not used to getting that love back. It's not like it went anywhere if you're suppressing it. It's just, you have to, you have to go after finding it you have to he's God is always there he's never he's not going to leave you he's he's greater than like he's bigger than you and he knows what you're going through he knows what you're feeling but you have to have enough within you to say you know what God I know I'm going through this I need you I need my faith to be restored you have to want it for one thing you have to want the change you have to want to be able you want a new start you have to want to have a relationship with God. I mean, you can't have a relationship with anybody if you don't feed it. Um, Your plants aren't going to grow if you don't water it. So it's just you have to make the decision and decide that I want something different for myself and I want my relationship back with God. I want a better relationship with my family. I want a better relationship with just myself. I want to grow. I need to move forward. So I think that would be the answer to your question. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And that goes back to what you're speaking about much earlier in our conversation about choosing, about deciding, because so much of what happens in our life after loss is that we're no longer experiencing life happening to us. We must decide to respond at some point. We have we now choose the direction that we go because we're no longer just coasting. Loss kind of puts a boulder in the road. It's like, all right, that road's gone. Which road are you going to carve out for yourself? And you have to do the work of carving it. And it sucks because it, it doesn't, at one of the most difficult points in our lives, here we are having to do some of the hardest work of our lives when it's like, couldn't you just hand me my new life, please? (laughs) Instead of me having to do the work of creating it because it's agonizing. And then there's all these questions of, well, where do I go? What is the right choice for me? What am I supposed to pick up? What are the tools that I want to use? And that goes back to that concept of being able to visualize, whether it's through a vision board or reading a book or something yeah. else, you know, the possibility that your life yeah. could look different from where you're standing right now. And it's such a wild thing to do in the aftermath of grief, but super, super vitally important. Um, I want to shift gears yeah. really quick. I've got two bigger questions for you and I'll, I'll do one later, but the one I want to ask now um, is that within this eight year span, you lost your dad, you lost your mm-hmm. sister, and then you lost your son. And the thing I wrote down when you introduced these losses was age generational because, and this is not a comparison of losses by any means, but to lose people who are older than you, kind of close to your age and definitely younger than you in the span of eight years. I'm like, how does that make you feel about 
how old you are, how old you live to be, the concept of people dying at their quote unquote time, like all of these perceptions about the order of things or how things are supposed to go versus what you actually lived and experienced. Well, I, through my transition of my grief process and my journey, I learned that eight meant new beginning. So in the year of the eight was, I was coming up on my father's eighth um, death, eighth, eighth death year anniversary. And the night that he passed, um, when my, his dad had called me and said, Tyke's missing. And I said, oh, why do you say he's missing, you know? Um, but because he had left his things in order by the table and all of these kinds of things. And so he was kind of feeling like something was wrong. Well, while I was having this, I was having this experience while I was sleeping. And when I later went back to go see what, to, to, to research what it was, it was called quantum entanglement because I was having this experience where life was seeming like it was coming out of my body and the DNA pattern was swirling around me. And all I heard was new beginning. I kept hearing spirits say new beginning and me learning all of that after the fact, because I really needed, especially when I started doing the research for my book, I needed to know what that experience was. And I really literally felt like his life leaving my body. And with my father, I didn't experience any of that with my sister. She had um, been in a coma for a year. So it was tragic that she had, we just, she just never woke up one morning, but a year later she passed. So, my father, what he lived to be 78. So, you know, he, he lived a good life. Um, we always know he had heart problems. So it wasn't, of course, it was traumatic because I lost my dad and he had been dead really for seven days that we didn't know. And my sister just never woke up. But it was a whole different experience because of my son, just because I guess that was my child. Um, and I gave birth to him. Um, my sister being her age, you know, she said grandchildren. I, I can't say that, you know, we didn't suffer. I didn't, I didn't do as much suffering as I'm sure her daughter did or her grandchildren did. But being the age that I am, I guess I kind of understood it better because she was in her 50s at the time. So she was a lot older than I am. So I kind of felt that, you know, even though she died in this manner, she still had a viable life. You know, she was a good mother. You know, she took very good care of her grandchildren. And I guess because I just start, I began to look at their life and, and what they accomplished and what they did in their life, as opposed to, I felt that my son had so much life to give. I mean, yeah, so much more life to live. And also that I had plans for him, you know, as a parent, you have plans for your children. And, um, cause I just saw all the potential that he had. Um, and, since when that didn't happen, I just kind of lost my, my way. That makes a whole lot of sense. And, and really speaks to this concept of kind of what we expect to happen at different ages or at different places in our lives. And even, even more so it's like, there's this ramped up or added level of intensity with you surviving these years after his brain injury and then him moving back to where he wanted to live and going through the court case and losing his best friend and all of these, these things that seemingly got in the way of like the life that you wanted to live for him. And you're like, finally, we're back on track. And then he's gone. And 
and just this idea of like, there was so much more, the grief recovery method would call it the death of hope, dreams and expectations. And it seems like we just carry so many like armfuls and armfuls for our babies. Um, And that's just so incredibly huge. And I think that's the direction that I want to go next is, um, is this idea of, I wrote it down in all capital letters, justice and gun violence, and maybe how the two are or are not related, because I think that's a toxic narrative that goes around society is that if the people are put away for life, if you find the people who committed the crime, if you know you remember those who have died in some special way, then you've done enough. But I don't think there's anything that can ever truly make the outcome of gun violence right other than it never having happened at all. It's very similar to grief. Like you can't correct death unless death didn't happen. Like it's, it's just, it's such a hard thing to speak about. And I know this is something that's very close to your heart. So I want to get into this idea of the system of gun violence that we have in our country, how we're addressing it. um, And then maybe how, we, I'm speaking for myself as someone who has not experienced gun violence and does not have it in my close circles that I can immediately recall, how we as people who have not had to live this life can respond to people who are living lives that are impacted by gun violence. For me, it's not the matter of taking a person's right to bear arms away. Um, we've, we've, we've danced around that so long from the constitution, you know, it's just, that's not the issue. The issue is having the access to guns in communities that are already suffering, um, that already have over saturation of alcoholism and mental health issues and lack of um, jobs and, and not so well education systems. And because of that, adding on top of the drug issue and, um, having the access to guns, those that are not um, have gone for those that who have not gone and 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 gone to the state and provided their information in order to to be checked by the government or their their state, excuse me, to be checked by their state to go ahead and get um, the rights to carry is what I'm trying to say. Excuse me. And um, how do how do we get so many of the the guns? the buyback guns and how do we get the guns that are stolen into the communities? That's more of the issue for me uh, is having the access to guns just so readily. And I remember my son, cause he used to be in the streets, just hanging out. They would hop cars, train cars, and it would be um, at the, uh, they, there, there would be carts full of guns. He told me, he was like, yeah, they were so easily for us to, to get them if we needed them, you know, and in Miami, there was a story just recently where there was a tractor trailer left with uh cases of guns just there, just everybody was just taking them. So how, I mean, how are we tracking the access to the guns that are in the street? Um, And I have now, I'm now the chief ambassador for Bullets for Life for Atlanta. And our mission is to bring more awareness about senseless gun violence and the effects that it has on communities one bullet at a time. And what we do, we actually make, bracelets out of bullets that are donated to us. We ask to that everyone 
that has bullets, just one. We feel like if you donate one bullet or don't donate bullet, that'll save a life. That'll save a bereaved mother or a mother to not be a become a bereaved mother. That'll save someone's aunt, uncle, friend, cousin, whoever. Um, one less life will be taken if we, uh, you know, as far as our initiative, we feel as though this anti-gun um, violence initiative should help others understand why we are so pumped up and readily excited to talk about it um, because we've gone through the suffering. It's now time to do something about it so every, someone else doesn't have to be affected by it. And um, our founder, who is in Florida, Susan Kennedy, she wasn't a, a personally affected. She just got tired of hearing the stories of children being killed um, like there was King Carter who was killed, this young boy who was on his way walking to the candy store and was shot. And she was just so frustrated. And a week later, another girl got killed and she was just frustrated. And, and she started this amazing organization, um, Bullets for Life. And now we're in several cities, Chicago, Atlanta, New Jersey, Memphis, um, Indiana, um, and we're just trying to bring more awareness and team up with like moms demand action and just whoever's that's listening about gun violence to help us heal and, and help get better um, laws put in place and set forth so that we can move forward. We're tired of just talking about it. We've been talking about it for so many years and we haven't gotten, we haven't gotten there yet. And we're still on the, we're still fighting. And I, I'm, as far as me, I know that me being a big part of this initiative, I'm going to continue to fight until the day that I die because I just don't want someone else's family to have to go through what I went through. Not only did I suffer, my mother, my children, siblings suffer tremendously from loss. Um, aunts and everyone, friends. So I just don't want to see someone else have to go through what I did. This always seems to remind me, this conversation that the larger world is having about gun violence and laws always reminds me of cars where like so much of it right now is we have to remind people of the power that they're holding in their hands. People forget that they drive around two ton death machines that could run any of us over and we'd be dead at any time. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of what's happening right now with gun violence is reminding people that like the small piece of metal that you put into this device can literally take someone's life. And to yes. just, gosh, to put that, that level of, of depth and understanding into someone's brain. And like, I really, I wish, I wish sometimes we could just shake people so they'd get the point. Like, like how, how asleep do you have to be to not recognize the immense amount of weight that you carry right now to take out another human life? Like it, it blows my mind. And it's a reason why like, I don't even have guns in my house because it's way too much power for me to even comprehend having. Um, it, yeah. it just absolutely like drives me wild. And so I'm so glad that there are additional organizations like yours that are raising awareness for things like that. And even proactively saying, here, we'll take your bullets. Like, we'll just take them off your hands. Yeah. Yeah, we will. We will. And 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 it's very, very therapeutic for moms, because when we disassemble the built bullets that we feel as though that we're killing a bullet, you know, mm. this is one less life being taken. We can just kill it. We're done with it. We sit around a round table. We have um, uh, we have with them with the moms. We have a, a 
program called Pop and Heal, where we pop the bullets and we wear our heels and we're healing at the same time. Um, we're having conversations about what happened and we're, we have an open discussion in a safe place where we can share. So a lot of good come out of it. And we also, we do sell the braces. They come in all colors, all sizes for men and women. And, but we always gift to the bereaved moms or the bereaved father, just because we know, we know what has, what they have gone through, what they're ex- experiencing. And it also gives us an opportunity. And especially for me being a master grief coach myself, it gives me the opportunity to be able to listen and hear, and still, I'm still healing within myself. The, the stories that I hear, you know, I with my story, sometimes you just think that you've been through it all, but I know mothers that have lost two children, you know, it's, it's, you know, but me being able to understand grief now and understand how to process and with me understanding Reiki and chakras and all of that for me healing, because initially suicide, saying suicide for me was, oh my God, it used to just tear me apart to talk about it, to even keep reading about it. But it was almost like I was forced into learning more about it. And as I grew to understanding it, now I'm helping moms that are going through this and I can, I, I, it's not a barrier. It's not a, a, a weight for me. I don't feel so heavy. You know, I, I know the things that I need to do to help, you know, bring my energy up and release my energy and move forward and meditate. But every person is not there yet. So I, I'm just grateful that God gave me the ability to learn all of the things that I did and with, and with healing and knowing how to do it for myself so that I could be, you know, a bigger source reference uh, and source to help moms. I think so much of the time grief is heavy because it's unfamiliar. And the more that it becomes familiar, we learn how to wear it and we learn where it belongs in our body and we learn how to carry it or sometimes we learn how to put it down too Mm -hmm. but like with things like saying the word suicide like it's so heavy at first because it's so foreign it's so unfamiliar um and in many cases especially with suicide with gun violence with other other ways that people die or are injured they're often taboo like there's not usually places for them carved out in quote-unquote polite conversation and so they're they're heavy and they're unfamiliar until they're not anymore. And it's our repeated saying of it and our repeated processing of it. And again, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation of this repeated envisioning something else, envisioning a future that looks different from this, where it's no longer heavy or maybe a little less heavy is is really, really powerful. Um, Miami, I'm going to let people know where they can find you, where they can find this organization as well, and anything else you'd like to share with us today. Sure. Um, first, I would like to say I do have a book that's coming out next month. It's called, my son's name was Taiki. So the book is called The Key Process. It's a grief guide to mastering spiritual healing. Um, you can reach me on Instagram at Master Grief Coach Miami. You can reach me at www.miamiknight with a K. That's miamiknightllc.com. Um I'm also at Bullets for Life Atlanta on Instagram and just, yeah, Instagram, my website, I'm in all three of those places. And to email me, I'm at info at miaminightllc.com or you can also email Bullets for Life Atlanta at gmail.com. 
I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing space with us today and sharing uh, the story and memories that you have with your father, your sister, and your son as well, as well as your own journey of coming back. I think it's incredibly powerful, this, this level of awakening that you had and are continuing to have in your work. Thank you so much for having me, Shelby. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Miami Knight for joining us to talk about gun violence, faith, and the power of visualizing a future in the aftermath of loss. I'm so glad to have had you on the show. Miami came back by praying, going to therapy, working to release childhood traumas, and by actively choosing to be a different person. You can find Miami's website where you can find her book, as well as links to Bullets for Life in your area in the show notes. If you're looking for more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, purchase a copy of my new book, Permission to Grieve, on Amazon. To keep this little grief podcast going and receive inside bonuses like weekly grief journaling with me, podcast swag, and live grief support every month, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Scythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby for Scythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. We are growing.